Hello everyone, Davos Rogers here, and welcome to this year's Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It is so good to have you along. We've got such an exciting collection of conversations with authors and readers this year, and all the details are on our website at cityroadpod.org. But today I'm talking with Jared Hoare about his new book, Visions of Nature, and it's a book that's getting a lot of hype on Twitter. And I'm talking with Jared about his new book in the City Road Studios right here at the University of Sydney. You've written this really, really interesting book and I was just saying to you a minute ago that every time I open up Twitter and you're tweeting about the book, it's going crazy on Twitter and it just must resonate with a lot of people. I think this topic, settler colonialism itself is a hot topic, but you've done something quite different with it here, Uh, visual culture and a set of photographers that you track through this book. Might be handy if you actually started with the the six photographers. Who are they? And most importantly, why these characters? Yeah. Um, thanks. You know, I, it's interesting that you say that. It's um, something that you know a lot of people are interested in. You know, certainly it's been my <laughs> primary occupation or preoccupation for the past eight or so years. I suppose I got interested in this project initially by looking at one of the photographers that I address at length in this book, a guy called John Beatty, who is actually kind of um, a latecomer to this uh, settler colonial world, I suppose, of the late 19th century. He, you know, arrives in Tasmania um, in about the 1870s and kind of immediately takes up uh, the camera um, in a moment of landscape photography enthusiasm in Tasmania. It's also kind of, you know, involved um, someone called Stephen Sperling. Beatty's quite young when he first takes up the camera. His parents take up land um, at New Norfolk. And he is less interested in the kind of primary business of settler colonialism in the late 19th century, which is converting land into productive agricultural land, you know, with that kind of sense of improvement that imbues a lot of the approaches to landscape um, in this period. He's less interested in the agricultural conversion of land and I think more interested in its conversion into things that we might recognise in you know, certain visual tropes within wilderness photography. So he takes up the camera, he starts um, going on trips into the Tasmanian highlands, the central plateau of Tasmania, which is kind of studded with beautiful lakes, um, as, many, as many of us know, and beautiful peaks as well. And he starts creating a catalogue of wilderness photography in Tasmania that is really quite interesting because he promotes it with this kind of romantic sensibility. And that's very clear in his writing. So he was the first photographer that I really got interested in. And I wrote a master's dissertation about um, John Beatty, you know, which may have been a bit uh, a bit of a clumsy analysis of his romanticism and um, his visual, uh, the visual world in which he created and the one that he inhabited. But I then kind of got interested in these other photographers. I wondered where this landscape photography um, moment in the late 19th century came from. And I wondered about its, I suppose, its relationship to settler colonialism. You know, as you mentioned, it's a hot topic. It's also, I suppose, um, you know, highly important kind of thing to reckon with um, for lots of us, settlers especially. And I suppose in some ways this book is, you know, me trying to do a little bit of that, um, you know, perhaps imperfectly. 
But by looking for these other photographers, I came across a very similar moment in late 19th century California. These are kind of the most two most um, famous photographers in the book, Carlton Watkins and Edward Moybridge. And they, I suppose, really popularised the Yosemite Valley as a kind of photographic object. But they developed this high definition, really, um, beautiful imagery um, of the kind of lakes uh, and the glacial landscape of um, the Yosemite Valley. The other thing that I noticed once I started looking into this was that, you know, this moment, of course, was mirrored too in New Zealand. And there's another photographer there called Alfred Burton, um, who is kind of, you know, New Zealand's Carlton Watkins, um, New Zealand's John Beatty. And he kind of develops a business with his family in Dunedin, where his brother focuses on kind of the portraiture that a lot of photographers made money off in this period. And Alfred gets, I suppose, the good end of the deal, and he's able to travel around New Zealand taking photographs of, again, glacial landscapes um, in the highlands. He has a very influential trip to uh, Tongariro um, and the King Country in the 1880s. And eventually he kind of develops, I suppose, this really kind of interesting mediation of kind of absent landscape photography, uh, this ethnographic portraiture, uh, because of course he encounters Indigenous people um, in lots of the places that he travels to. The final photographer, the sixth, um, I suppose is um, a little bit of an interesting character in that he doesn't really fit in any of these kind of settler colonial moulds like the others do. His name's Daniel Mundy. He kind of circulates around what I call the Tasman world. He kind of begins in New Zealand. He travels back to London to promote his imagery of New Zealand. He comes back to Australia. He's in Sydney periodically taking photographs around the time of the International Exhibition in the late 1870s. Eventually settles once again in Melbourne, which is where he passes away. He's a kind of interesting figure because he's a um, photographer without photographs <laughs> in the sense of this book. Um, Mundy's photographs um, don't appear in this book, you know, as illustrations. He has a couple that I analyse, but he's interesting in that his kind of archival trace is um, much less noticeable than some of these other photographers. I possibly included him for kind of, you know, for like a kind of utilitarian end, but it might be interesting to think about, you know, Daniel Mundy as a as one of the photographers that represents so many others whose you know, photographs aren't reproduced in archives and libraries and galleries. It's interesting you say that the at least the first photographer wasn't interested in the settler colonial process as we typically think about it, claiming land, building fences, building property, dispossessing Aboriginal people of the land materially. But I do read your book as a commentary about them being implicated in the settler colonial project in other ways, and particularly the geographical imaginations of the Settler Colonial Project. There's this great piece in your book right up the front, page 35, where you're talking about Settler Colonialism and Settler Colonial Expansion, and you say that this world was also developed through chemicals, glass and light. And for anyone who's actually done photography, they'll know exactly what you're talking about there. I was kind of interested in this idea that settler colonialism is produced through these practices, these visual practices. How does that play out? It is kind of, um, you know, this is one of the things that I initially got interested in in this project. 
yeah, as you say, like that geographical imagination, you know, we know, historians know lots about how settler colonialism was kind of like geographically inscribed on maps, how it was, you know, a kind of spatial project, not a, you know, not necessarily a temporal project or a project with um, depth, but a project that had this kind of like spatial expanse. You know, historians also know lots about that conversion of, you know, so-called wastelands into productive agricultural land. It's that Lockean principle of mixing labour with the soil. Um, it's this constant obsession with improvement, um, I say in scare quotes, um, the improvement of land and, you know, thereby it's kind of like legitimate occupation. And the reason I got interested in this project in the first place is because I was interested in you know, what, what were the stages of settler colonialism in a kind of like practical sense? And particularly when it came to um, national parks, right? So national parks in all of these three places get declared in the late 19th century. Um, Yellowstone first in the American West, then Yosemite. Then there's the Royal National Park south of Sydney. There are a couple of other places in Australasia that get protected. And Mount Tongariro itself becomes New Zealand's first national park. And I wondered, what is it, you know, in these settler colonies where, that are so obsessed with improvement, that are so learned in this kind of Lockean conception that the justifiable occupation of territory stems from the admixture of labour and soil? What is it that, you know, then they turn to the preservation of these landscapes where that is explicitly not the, the part of um, what they're trying to do? And, you know, one answer, I think, um, I hope anyway, um, after writing this book, is that actually there is this kind of conversion, you know, and Tracy Banabinuamar, the late Tracy Banabinuamar argued this, is that the declaration of national parks is this kind of last stage in the settler colonial occupation of land, where it changes from this kind of material, practical project into a project that is kind of high culture. And that is where these photographers fit in by virtue of their kind of when photography develops, when landscape photography in particular develops as a useful way of reproducing views of the natural environment, the photographers are right there at this moment where settlers turn from occupying land via this kind of relentless expansion and occupation and dispossession that is practical, that is material, that is kind of based in you know, interactions with the soil the transition from that project to a project where it becomes more visual, more cultural. Um, and these photographers then, they produce these images that are highly reproducible once they are kind of distilled, once they are developed through chemicals, glass and light, which is you know, a challenging enough process as it is. They then go into this circulation. Um, and one of the notable things that I found quite early in this project in the archives is just how often these images are in multiple archives. They're everywhere. They move around the world through kind of imperial channels. They move around the world through settler colonial channels. You will find that many of the images that are preserved in, say, the National Library of Australia are also preserved in the State Library of Victoria. They're preserved in Tasmania. They're preserved in New South Wales. They're preserved in Queensland. Often enough, all of those archives have New Zealand images. So I think kind of you know, where photography fits in here is as this next phase in a settler colonial process. You know, no doubt there are other kind of elements to that phase. You know, there are lithographs that are produced at a kind of high rate in this period that are, you know, some of them are adopted specifically from the photographs. Some of the photographs frame nature in the same way that lithographs do. 
And then there is also, as you know, lots of us know, the kind of you know, emergence of a nationalist art form in Australia we called the Heidelberg School in the late 19th century and early 20th century that does a lot of the kind of work um, you know, that these uh, photographs do too. That is super interesting. Uh, in a way, you need to render the landscape as private property and as built environment, and only then can you capture nature in this particular form and style. I hadn't really thought about it in that in those terms and in that temporality, actually, that it comes right at the end. That's um, super interesting. And you suggest that photographers, much like other settlers, be they scientists, anthropologists, etc., were writing, and this is these are your terms, inscribed new earth histories into the landscape. And I just, they were some interesting terms, and I think this goes to the kind of environmental history that you're trying to write here, or that you are writing. What, what do you mean by inscribing new earth histories into the landscape? And this might even actually flow into the work you're doing now beyond this book. Yeah, so I kind of deal with this in chapter two. Yeah, it's kind of interesting just to me personally, because I wrote this chapter quite early in the process where I kind of got obsessed with this moment in in Yosemite, actually, where there's this active debate about what formed Yosemite Valley. You know, how was the Yosemite Valley formed? And I was intrigued by the fact that photographers were participating in this debate. So in the Yosemite Valley, which is kind of, I suppose, discovered, again, scare, scare quotes, um, by white Americans in the late 19th century, it is immediately understood as somewhere that is geologically important, that is important for the nation <laughs> um, of North America, and that is important for settlers kind of in general in this kind of like romantic sense of belonging. The important thing is here that it is encountered in a period after which the kind of, um, I suppose, the bounds of earth history had been dramatically kind of exploded in the early 19th century, the kind of time frame of uh, Earth history goes from, and, and this is a quite well-known story, goes from a kind of biblical time frame into a kind of deep history, deep time time frame. Is that where the Enlightenment and knowledge, is that where that those ideas are coming from? Um, I suppose they're kind of late Enlightenment thinkers. Um, you know, the famous kind of touchstone is James Hutton's quote in uh, 1788, I think, that he envisages an Earth um, or he's arguing for an earth with, you know, no vestige of a beginning and no prospect of an end, you know, this kind of like epochal, timeless earth. You know, that gets refined, you know, via someone like Charles Lyell and actually via um, by Charles Darwin into kind of what we now understand as conventional earth history. It goes from, as I said, a biblical timescale to this timescale that's very deep. And, it, you know, maybe, yeah, I think you could probably argue that it's a, a kind of late enlightenment um, you know, payoff um, for British earth science in particular. So these settlers are encountering these places on the edges of the world, more or less, um, in their kind of conception anyway, in this period where all these new types of explanations of how places are formed are now possible. Sometimes geologists will kind of revert back to biblical explanations and sometimes they'll develop kind of totally new explanations of how places were formed. In America, the time of the kind of encounter with uh, Yosemite Valley, there was an open debate about the formation of landscapes under glaciers, um, kind of led by Louis Agassiz at Harvard. And that's kind of what's picked up on by the photographers. So before this, it was understood via, you know, uh, the geologists of the California Geological Survey 
that Yosemite was kind of created in this catastrophic moment of kind of subsidence and upheaval. But the photographers latch onto a, a theory that is articulated by the next generation of Californian geologists that actually the granite kind of valley is carved out under these massive glaciers. It's a different kind of process. It's a process that doesn't have a kind of fixed origin point. It's not catastrophic in the sense that the older earth history was. It's gradual and, you know, it's quite radical um, at the time. And some, like one of the photographers, um, Edward Moybridge, you know, quite clearly kind of starts titling his photographs with this, you know, glacial history of the Yosemite Valley. And the other one, Carlton Watkins's photographs, they illustrate one of the reports of the second generation of geologists who are kind of mounting this radical claim that this valley was formed over a long period of time via glacial erosion, but not via this one mm. moment. I find it really interesting. I never thought about the intersection between science as it was emerging at the time and the new understandings we have about how the landscape is created and the way that the photographers were thinking about their photography and indeed naming their photography. Mm. And I kind of, again, come back to thinking about that in the terms of settler colonialism itself and it not just being this process of land claiming and land theft and dispossession, but it's also about science. And here you're also telling it's about photography. And it's just, I find that really fascinating how those things go together here. And of course, people have talked about settler colonialism and science for a long time. Um, but I, I really like the way you've brought photography into that, which is a very scientific process. It comes out of like photography itself is becomes an art form, but it starts as a science. Yeah, these people are chemists, <laughs> actually. Um, and that's how they produce these images. They have to wrangle with, you know, certain chemical compounds. They have to wrangle with their interaction with light, with energy, right? You know, they have to understand that process in a very kind of embodied way. A lot of these photographers aren't trained as chemists, um, yet they are very kind of capable. Can you tell me what it's like going out? What would it have been like to go out in the field? Because it was going out into the field with pieces of technology to take photos, not just taking your iPhone for a bushwalk, is it? Yeah, sometimes I actually find it hard to empathise, actually. You know, I have to imagine a different type of... Like, it is, it is easy. It is probably more accurate to think about these people as scientists than it is to as photographers in the way that we understand it. You know, the best example, I think, is Carlton Watkins, who accompanied a geological survey early in his career, and the surveyor in charge of the survey was, was shocked at the amount of equipment that Watkins took now, Watkins was kind of well supported. He was already an influential photographer at this point. So he had, he had a lot of gear, but he had, you know, multiple tons of material. He had his own wagon that he took with him, his mobile darkroom that stored all of his chemical equipment and that he used to develop photos kind of on site. I think that provided a kind of base for Watkins, but on his kind of trips to certain places, he would have undergone the same kind of work that other photographers in this book underwent you know, which is like carrying small amounts of chemicals, you know, sometimes with people who kind of carry them for you, sometimes with a mule or with a horse, then kind of setting up a site from which he could take a view, making sure the light was in the right position, you know, hundreds, thousands of photographs were likely kind of lost or, um, you know, abandoned because of the conditions of the light. Coating the plate numerous times, this glass plate, and and Watkins, when he could, would use these huge kind of forty-inch glass plates. You know, equally large camera camera box. So he'd coat the plate, 
um, with the appropriate chemicals, wait and, you know, some of these were gels, some of them were washers, wait for the right conditions, slip it into the plate, into the camera in the dark, take the cap off, wait for the appropriate exposure time, depending on the light, you know, which I suppose is the art of photography rather than the chemistry of photography at this time, replace the cap, remove the plate, coat it again with other chemicals that were designed to fix the image that had been imprinted on the glass plate, then wait for those to set and store it somewhere safe so that it didn't shatter, um, you know, as he dragged it over rocks or up and down cliffs or wherever it was that he was kind of, you know, returning to, you know, either the survey party or the party of people who were assisting him with the photographic expedition. So, yeah, certainly quite a process. And there are some reflections of the photographers on the difficulty of the process, It was something I got a little bit interested in during the research process, probably less than I'd have expected. Some in in journals or diaries, people writing about how a, you know, a certain expedition was ruined because, you know, a fly or some, you know, some insects um, got stuck into a particular canister of chemicals and um, other things like that. Temperature, again, was a really difficult problem for a lot of the photographers. Interesting to me anyway that they didn't promote their photography as this highly difficult kind of process that they should be kind of lauded for, Um, but they did complain about it in their um, diaries and journals and letters to um, other people. If we fast forward to towards the end of the book, you do get into a question that I think a lot of people will find very interesting, and that's the idea of Aboriginal dispossession, Indigenous removal, and you say that, well, you, you go back and say that colonial histories are, envir- it's an environmental exercise. What settler colonial is, has to do with radically reconfiguring the landscape, what's in the landscape, how you think about the landscape, how you regulate it, what you use it for. We've talked about, you know, applying labour to the land and, and all those Lockean things. How does the photography component fit into this question about Indigenous dispossession and and uh, and the environment itself. Yeah, thank you. This is like this is in fact the crux of the book. I suppose it could have been a history of all the photography that were, that accompanied expedition, geological expeditions or survey expeditions. Um, it could have been a story of the photography that was kind of you know in service of agricultural development of the conversion of settler colonial landscapes at encounter to kind of these bucolic Arcadian landscapes. I won't say that would have been a boring book, um, but it probably would have been a boring book for me because the key question that all of those images actually raise and that I address in the first kind of couple of chapters of the book is this fundamental problem of, hold on, where are the Indigenous people? And so we know from generations of Aboriginal historians, um, Aboriginal writers, uh, Aboriginal activists, we know that Aboriginal people are here, right? Like this is not, it should come as no surprise that Aboriginal people are resisting settler colonialism at this very moment. And interestingly, Aboriginal people find it much easier to resist settler colonialism in these places that become national parks. There is a brief period, which is, I suppose, best exemplified in the United States, where Indigenous people are inhabiting the Yosemite National Park. They're actually a a crucial part of the landscape. Um, And that changes in the early 20th century. But when I learned that, it kind of, you know, it it sets off this, this question that has to sit right in the middle of the book. It's the central chapter of the book. 
And it's about how these landscapes became empty or emptied. You know, and I want to insist that they are visually emptied. They're not kind of practically emptied. So this question of absence, right, it haunts over the book and I try and deal with it squarely in kind of the middle chapter. And the best way, I think, of approaching it is through one of the photographers, Alfred Burton, who takes this trip into the King Country in the centre of the North Island of New Zealand in the middle of the 1880s. And the King Country at this period is, you know, it's understood as the kind of final frontier in New Zealand. This is a period after the kind of the biggest period of like outright warfare, um, the New Zealand Wars where there are a number of kind of tribal communities that are existing more or less autonomously in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand. And of course, the settlers are interested in it. At this very moment, they're trying to um, chart uh, the course for a railway through the middle of the North Island. Yet, Indigenous people are continuing to resist. Just before Burton goes there, you know, there are these cases of abduction, um, you know, prisoner taking where... Uh, settler people go into the king country without permission and are kind of, you know, taken taken prisoner, more or less. So all of this kind of hangs over this incredibly important album that Burton puts together in the 1880s. It's called The Maori at Home because what, what, what he's able to do there is put together this quite amazing set of photographs of Maori life at this time. And so he has these amazing, beautiful portraits of, you know, senior Maori people, of, you know, more or less Maori life in the king country. But what he also finds is this kind of amazing highland scenery. Um, And what's so useful about Burton is that he has this album, The Maori at Home, and then he has this syndicated newspaper column and also, you know, a series of archives and notes um, called Through the King Country with the Camera. Um, So he finds this amazing Highland scenery. So here we have in this very like same moment, this very expedition, the fundamental problem of settler colonial wilderness photography, which is that the beautiful landscapes are there, yet they are also inhabited by Aboriginal people. So what's interesting with Burton, and I think what Burton does most clearly, and the other photographers do this in different places, the um, Edward Moybridge does it in Northern California in a site called the Tool Lake Lava Beds, where there is a kind of active conflict going on, and he goes there to document the conflict, but gets obsessed with the lava beds. Beattie does it in a way in Tasmania. He's interested in the photographs of the Aboriginal people that are then kind of living at Oyster Cove. Um, you know, but he's also interested in the Highland landscapes and Nicholas Kerr also does it in the kind of Gippsland. But what Burton kind of does most effectively is that he develops a way of picturing Indigenous people in portraiture. I call it ethnophotography because of the way that it draws upon anthropological concepts of savagery and primitivism. And he also kind of complements that in his album with this kind of absent, empty landscape photography. And because it's right there in the same album, I think it is unavoidable to conclude that, you know, this is the process that these photographers are undergoing. And the useful thing is, is that in his diary, he writes about how there are Maori people that are helping him, like they carry his equipment, you know, they take him to some of the most scenic places. What's interesting there is that, you know, it seems as though as soon as there is this beautiful scenic um, view to take, it's an orientation of the camera is all it really takes in this moment to dispossess Aboriginal people from their land. Fascinating. Uh, I did 
suggest to you that I might ask you about dragging some of these ideas into the contemporary moment and into the question that we're dealing with in the festival, which is urbanism. And you said you might have some reflections on that. Yeah, possibly. Um, one of the things I hope general readers, historians, all kinds of readers of this book might, one of the, the points I hope they might take away is that, you know, this way of framing landscapes, you know, is still with us. It's really clear in the United States where that imagery of Watkins um, in particular became so influential. It's influential in Ansel Adams. You can more or less trace it through to the promotional imagery that, you know, defines national parks in the, you know, in the West of the United States today. Where I started with this project, John Beatty, you know, his photographs are still all over Tasmania. Like, you know, as soon as you go to a cultural institution in Tasmania, it is, um, you know, it's fairly easy to come across um, a BD photograph. And I think like the, the aesthetics of this kind of wild, beautiful, untouched nature, it's, it's there in the highly significant political imagery that um, Peter Dombrovskis puts together in the late 20th century that then assists us to, assists activists to preserve landscapes in the present. And, you know, and that is the same, that is really a very similar process to what the kind of imagery that Beattie was putting together at the time. Like he, his photographs were involved with the promotion of Tasmania as a place of kind of recuperative retreat. You know, it's like a very familiar kind of concept. The relationship with urbanism, you know, is another kind of interesting question. I don't think it's any coincidence that this photography develops on in settler colonial sites that are also becoming highly urban in this period. So San Francisco and Melbourne in the middle to the late 19th century are probably the two fastest growing urban settlements on the planet. They are highly significant sites for urban cultures, I think, in this period. They provide a ready-made audience for these photographers, you know, both in terms of the portraiture that, that for a while pays the bills, but also for this imagery of nature that, you know, is positioned as an antidote to all of these kind of urban, um, all of the urban stresses that people are undergoing at the time. And of course, in these like fast growing settlements, you know, there are huge urban stresses and governments recognise this in the late 19th century and they begin to promote, and, and that is one of the reasons why national parks get legislated in the first place, particularly this one here in Sydney, uh, the Royal National Park. It's extremely proximate to the city. You know, it's very clearly positioned and argued for in the late 19th century as somewhere for urban populations to go to kind of, yeah, to, to relieve themselves of the stresses of urbanism. There are health implications there and there are moral implications there. And that is, you know, drawn on this kind of long tradition of positioning nature in, in this way. And so, yeah, I think it becomes, this photography becomes highly important in this moment because of the urban histories that we can observe in places like Victoria and in California. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been super talking to you. We've uh, been talking for way too long. Thank you. Thanks for having me so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jared Hoare about his new book, Visions of Nature. We've got a lot more conversations just like this all the details are on the City Road Podcast website at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.